Hello, I'm Paige, and this is the Euro Intelligence Podcast covering current affairs in the EU and Eurozone. I'm joined by Wolfgang and Susanna, directors of Euro Intelligence in Oxford. The big news story this week is Hungary, which has put the EU in a serious crisis. Together with Poland, Hungary has vetoed the EU's own resources decision, which in turn blocks the budget, recovery fund, and any potential new rule of law mechanism. Wolfgang, today you detailed how the enhanced cooperation procedure could be one way out of this mess, but that doing something like that would take determination and ruthlessness. You had some very, very strong words for Angela Merkel, who you described as the mentor and patron of Viktor Orban. Why did you say that? As we all know, the Fidesz party, uh, Viktor Orban's party, is in the EPP, and it has been Germany's CDU and Merkel in particular who has put a protective shield around him. So any criticism we have for Orban, we have to direct this also at Merkel. Uh, we can't keep up the, the hypocrisy of you know, pretending that she is the leader of the Western world or an icon of liberalism, while Orban is the, uh, the nasty authoritarian. The, the reason for why Orban is Orban and why he can do what he does is because the, the German establishment, especially the CDU, has kept protecting him. And this is the reason why we're not getting anywhere. The enhanced cooperation procedure should have been used from the start. The recovery fund is not really an EU-level project. Uh, it should never have been an EU-level project because the whole rationale for a eurobond, a fiscal capacity, has always been to give the monetary union a, a fiscal counterpart. There is no rationale to do this on the level of the EU 27 or 28 uh, before, you know, while, while the UK was still there. It was always a sense to make it a Eurozone level thing and invite other countries to join it if they want to. That's the way we've done it with banking union and, and other instruments. You know, it should be an open mechanism. I don't think people should be excluded. Now, the difficulty to use the procedure now is that it will take some time. So this is not something that can be done next week, but nothing can be done next week. We should be absolutely clear that if, if he holds up the veto um, and the polls seem at least as determined as the Hungarians, we should not underestimate their opposition. The language coming from the Polish government is very Brexit-like. They talk about the EU in the same context as the Soviet Union now. Uh, the language is very, very uh, aggressive, used by the Prime Minister. This is not just some right-wing uh, newspaper. This is actually the, the government. So, you know, we have to be realizing this is a fight. You know, the EU is in a situation where the usual fudges don't work. Now, I have no doubt that Merkel will try that, that Merkel will try to compromise on the rule of law. It was never her thing anyway. So uh, she would probably find a way to persuade Orban and, and the Post that these laws will never be applied, ever be applied. They're just a, sort of a, a symbolic a statement about what we think is right and wrong, but not, not a reality. A bit like the, if you recall back the old stability pact yeah. uh, of, the late <laughs> of the 1990s, that pact had a, a fine in it uh, that countries that that exceed the 3% deficit would be fined. That fine, even though countries, especially France, exceeded that deficit <laughs> year in, year out, were never fined. That fine was never applied. And clearly, so it was right, obviously, mad. That 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 fine idea is mad. <laughs> uh, but the same, it's, it's, it's hypocritic because you're putting something in which we all know would never be applied simply to pacify some, some in this case, some German fiscal conservatives. But it, it is absolutely a dishonest way of, of, um, of drafting legislation. And the same, you know, I, I think they will try this again because, you know, this is, this is how, you know, when, when you assess a situation always as complex as the EU and you try to predict what they will do, the, most, the safest prediction you can always make is that they do what they always do. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, they, might, they might do something different from time to time, but you know, the normal the normal reaction in the US is to kick the can down the road. Of course. And to be, you know, if there is a dishonest solution that works, that's what they choose. If there's a difficult solution that might make them some enemies, they will avoid that. And the, you know, the enhanced cooperation procedure is aggressive. There's no question that it is aggressive because it's it would be used to exclude countries. Yeah. It can be used to exclude countries. Normally that isn't possible, but in this case, it is possible to exclude countries that you say. This is for countries that actually want to do that. And you can only limit the participation of that to those countries that actually voted in favor of that. And Hungary and Poland have already decided not to vote in favor of that. So they have already created facts by, by casting their vote. So the procedure is applicable. And the question now is for the EU uh, to use it. If the EU chooses not to use it, then the EU chooses not to have a recovery fund. It's that simple. Or the EU chooses not to have a rule of law mechanism. But without the enhanced coordination, cooperation, the EU will have to choose between the two. You can either have the fund or you can have a rule of law linkage, but you cannot have both. Well, yeah, it's interesting that you had mentioned you can't have both because I've been reading in the Dutch press, um, Mark Rutte, you know, he's ramping up for his own election season right now. And he's saying he's not going to budge on this. Orban has famously said he doesn't know why Margaret hates him so much. This was the playground gossip <laughs> this year. So yeah, which one of them is going to come out on top, do you think? It won't be that simple. I don't think there will be a formal change to the rule of law mechanism. Even Merkel can't do that because, as you said, Rutte has an election coming up in March. He will certainly not budge on that. Don't underestimate the opposition by Finland. Uh, Finland is at least as, as, as adamant on the rule of law mechanism mm-hmm. as the Netherlands. And in fact, the Nordics, you know, the Nordics feel very strongly about that. Um, you know, I feel very strongly about that too. I think there should be a, a rule of law mechanism. But if you, you know, if you try to pass this along with a recovery fund, it was a predictable dilemma. And you know, we talked about this. I mean, we said, how do they going to get this past the council? I mean, the reason we opposed folding the recovery fund in the EU budget is not only because we knew it would be a small fund. I mean, that fund is at three hundred ten billion euros, which is the grants element of the fund, is as 0.7% of EU GDP. This is more than nothing. It's not nothing, but it's not, you know, we talked about a trillion, maybe two trillion. These were the sums we discussed back in March. The, the crisis has gotten worse since then. We have a second wave of the pandemic. The economic uh, impact of this crisis is worse than it was foreseen at the time. We discussed V-shaped recovery scenarios at around the time when the fund was agreed. Nobody does that anymore. So that was a disadvantage because the EU budget is a limited instrument because we have to seek consensus. But it was clear that the Hungarians and Poles would object to the um, rules of law mechanism, and people didn't see that coming. People thought there's a lot of complacency about that, especially in the in the media who have not seen this, you know, who have not reported this. Who basically said, "Oh, you Hungary and Poland are net recipients of the of the budget. They won't do this. They are bluffing." You're still getting people out there on Twitter saying they're bluffing. We have to call this bluff. This is nonsense. They're not bluffing. They're smart, and we are not smart. And this is basically the reason we've landed in this mess. Well, I've also been reading opinion polls, or actually just one tweet about an opinion poll in Hungary that says um, this veto is actually really unpopular with uh, the citizens of Hungary. That they're they're really really opposed to it. So. Another question I had for you is just what do you think might happen to Orban's supermajority of his economy? Like playing the most improbable scenario, suppose the EU is ruthless, Orban has somehow denied his money, the economy tanks, he has elections coming up too. What do you think would happen to his supermajority in that case? Economic 
recessions obviously affect political outcomes, but uh, one has that will depend on how that story of that recession will play out in the Hungarian media. Mm -hmm. I would not rely on opinion polls. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, first of all, we've, we've been through this. We've seen this in Brexit, you know, remain one in every opinion poll and and lost in every election. Yes. So uh, so we just got to be some clear, clear about that. These opinion polls, especially when it comes to EU approval, are vastly mistaken assumption about the reality on the ground. The reality on the ground is that in Italy, we have two right wing parties accounting for almost 50 percent of the votes mm. uh, in the polls. And so one should not assume that this is you know a reflection of approval of Europe. That is not the case. Orban has a two-thirds majority. He has managed to strengthen his support as as he's won three elections in a row. He might win a fourth one. He is the second longest serving member on the European Council after Angela Merkel. He knows the way the EU works exceedingly well. And being a member of its largest faction is certainly helping him. Yeah. Uh, has certainly helped him make, make connections. He's not an outsider. He's, a, he's very much the ultimate EU insider. So if the EU were ruthless and really took him on, uh, that might well strengthen him. I cannot predict that this will of necessity mean that the Hungarians will oust him and choose somebody else. Um, and also what he's doing, you know, is he's actually using his majority now to change the constitution, yeah, making well, it more difficult for opposition parties to line up candidates against him and the way every electoral system is different. And there's clearly a, this is clearly a form of gerrymandering, but it's making it harder for opposition party to, to achieve joint lists. Now, that's also hard in the UK. It's not like itself a dictatorial thing to do. There are voting systems where winner takes all. And that's the kind of system that, that he is now um, advocating with, with rules that favor his party, that would not be in themselves undemocratic if you just read them on paper. They mm. are just undemocratic if you if you understand the context in which they are applied. So the he will do this. He will he will do a lot of he's, he's also changing the definition of what constitutes public money. If in the end he has to compromise, he can ring fence a lot of stuff outside any uh, existing rule of law mechanism. And that is what I think is likely to be, to happen. So if the EU does not crack down on him, I expect Orban to do so much changes to the constitution that the EU will ultimately not really get at him because yeah. he will put everything into the constitution. The EU cannot really challenge a member state's constitution directly because it's not a policy. Uh, it's like the German debt break uh, cannot be challenged by the European Commission because it's a constitutional law. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, the ECJ could pass a ruling, but then we're back to the situation right now where the ECJ can overrule, if it decides to, a national, uh, a national country's laws. It can declare certain laws in countries un uh, incompatible with European law, but it's not the same thing as the rule of law like a mechanism, which is a political mechanism. The whole idea is that if the EU things some country is breaching EU, EU law, then it can withhold funds, but it doesn't need, it wouldn't need a court ruling for that or an enforcement for that. It's just basically a political decision of whether the country does or doesn't. It's a much reduced hurdle. And, you know, he, he tries to ring fence himself against this abuse. And I would assume the Poles who also have the ability to change the constitution uh, will do likewise. Is there anything else like that our listeners should keep an eye out for? Like, do you expect any movement on this issue in the next couple weeks, couple months? Like, what? How do you see the timeline of this playing out right now? Uh, the timeline is, is slow. The, uh, the European Council this week didn't talk about it much. They talked 16 minutes. Oh yeah, uh, which obviously means that they were not in a mood to solve the problem. Uh, people are stating their views, but they are not. Uh, you know, they haven't come to a conclusion there. 
They're keeping it um, civil right now. <laughs> they, they keep it for the next council in December. That's where there's the big the big thing will be will be concluded. They also didn't talk about Brexit because there's nothing to talk about. Uh, so this issue is likely to. There will be now discussions clearly going on about how to respond to that. Um, the, Poland and Hungary have doubled down with their decision. So this is not going to be. They're not going to, you know, let go of that very quickly. So uh, so so I would not expect unless the EU decided to move on uh, enhanced cooperation. You know, if the, if a consensus were to emerge on this, if they can they can act pretty quickly. At the moment, uh, they are reluctant precisely because the German presidency is reluctant. Now, you know, we have to maybe in the new year, there may be another opportunity, but, you know, time passes and that means the recovery fund is being delayed because even if an agreement is reached, it will take some, still some time until the budget agreement becomes laws because it has to be ratified in member states. Some member states might go slow. It's, you know, it won't happen. Um, it won't happen uh, for a while. And the EU budget is already in delay and this delays it further. So we're looking at, at a very serious delay. And even if you consider that the disbursements, the actual payment of money under the recovery fund wouldn't have started until the second half anyway because projects have to be approved and go through a certain bureaucratic procedure mm-hmm. uh, you know this is looks it makes it more likely that this whole process is going to be pushed back into q3 q4 and you know by the you know the first money will probably flow while we're already outside the crisis uh, while the recovery is already happening and then that means the uk the eu would have taken some 18 months to report to <laughs> to, to react to this and that gives uh, the the recovery fund itself a bad name because it basically yeah. shows the EU can't do this. Not really an emergency fund, isn't it? No, no. It's I mean, like a, like in the first crisis where we where every response to the Greek or to eurozone crisis was delayed, and uh, I think we see very much a replay of that. And I think it's in, it really is a fundamental question of politics, and especially in EU politics. Is the question of the time frame? I mean, if something happens so fast and quickly, like a pandemic, how can you make sure that um, there is a there is a body that can act uh, accordingly and quick enough? So it means all the legal stuff has to be in place in order to allow that. And we clearly are not there yet. In a way, you could say that this fund is uh, this fund is actually for the next crisis, not this one. Yeah. Okay. Well, then why is Brussels, why is the European Commission beginning to send, you know, to fire warning shots about countries needing to balance their budgets if it hasn't even dispersed any of this emergency fund yet? Is it not yeah. getting a little bit ahead of itself with kind of warnings on austerity or what? what's going on there? I think old, old habits die hard, don't they? <laughs> um, and we had certainly have our culture, austerity culture deep ingrained in the DNA of the EU. There's a part of the package of the French budget, which is more kind of the stimulus package, which is meant to help the economy coming out of this crisis of lockdown. And these are have elements like um, like the tax cuts for companies, and that's in, in, in the size of 10 million, which the, the commission t- says um, is neither temporary uh, nor is it is it really uh, compensated for in the budget? And that's that what they take issue with. Um, the same is true for the raise in salaries for the healthcare stuff. This is a structural change and it's not going to be reversed after the crisis. So this is a two parts I took issue with. And um, I imagine that next year, hmm, neither the, the French will not budge on this one nor will uh, the Brussels budget on uh, reminding and criticizing 
And then we had the same dance between France and Brussels, as we always have. <laughs> uh, France is moving and pushing the boundaries. Uh, Brussels says no and uh, whips, uh, whips its, uh, its narrative on austerity. And then in the end, they find some, some form of compromise that's face-saving enough for the French to say we won. Well, it's interesting that you're mentioning France trying to change the rules on austerity. I don't know, did you catch uh, Macron's interview this week with uh, the Grand Continent? He proposed an alternative to the Washington consensus. So he's talking about the Paris consensus now and saying we need to start challenging some assumptions of capitalism and looking at inequality and climate change as kind of un- unacceptable features of, of uh, the current global system. I didn't see the whole interview on snippets that came up on my Twitter timeline. Um, I think it's um, one of those, op- well, one of those uh, stunts where media <laughs> right. where we really try to lead to the left and the right, well, the left here in particular, um, actually to uh, to create that image that yes, we are for ecological measures and yes, we're standing up for the end of inequality. If that were true, if you take these um, tax measures that they're planning for the stimulus, um, they're basically geared towards big bigger businesses it's yeah. like incumbents it's, it's like the ones who are already having a business but not for the independents not for the small ones who are the ones who actually could uh, could benefit from that much more than the big ones so when you talk about it uh, talks about these things and the qualities then uh, it doesn't it's not reflected from the reality of the day uh, at least not in the budget uh, can we also talk a little bit about policies in France that are pandering to the right wing, um, because we saw a lot of protests this week over the security law uh, that France is proposing right now, as there's especially Article 24 of this law would make it illegal to disseminate pictures of faces of police officers on social media that might hurt their mental integrity, I think it was. Uh, Susanna, what's your take on all the hullabaloo, the security law this week? Do you think... uh, it's going to do anything to help Macron's law and order credibility. Well, I was wondering whether this is the taking break. This is the breaking point for Macron. I mean, remembering in 2017, he came to with power with the agenda to liberate uh, the, the whole country, and now we're here in the middle after after the Gilets mass protests, and now with the pandemic, lockdown, and now with this law doing the exactly opposite, limit, limiting freedoms uh, and reigning in on law and order. Um, and yes, of course, in the press, it's always debated that this is done in order to cater for the electorate of the right. And of course, some of the crisis like um, the pandemic, it's not, a, not something that has, has been created by the, by the government itself or by Macron itself. Yeah, this law that he this was pushed by his uh, uh, interior minister, and actually, <sighs> Darmanin, this guy's such I mean, a cartoon villain. He's it is, he's <laughs> such a villain. I mean, he's it's really really awful, uh, and I find it deeply. And uh, the symbolic statements he made. I mean, this week he made a huge mess going to the press, as you reported earlier, right? Yeah. Uh, and telling the police, uh, telling the press that they should go and inform the authorities before they cover any protests. 
and rightfully so, um, human rights um, organizations, as well as uh, freedom of press um, representatives and, and advocates just completely rebelled against it. This is absolutely appalling. Yeah, and, agreed. Uh, the, I mean, the fact that he's not proposing to revise that Article 24, rather than scrapping it, as the opponents would like to see, yeah. is, uh, is a fig leaf, really, because the damage is in any way done. The police, I mean, the police are arresting a, a, tele- a television reporter to, to detain him for it for reporting on these protests against the security law is is one of the signals that the police see this as a clear sign that they can actually go hard on the people on the ground. And that is a boring bit. I mean, how is it done in practice? Um, We know words are one thing, uh, and but how is it understood? What is the symbolic value of these things? I find it really troubling, uh, the symbolism of this, this, this law. Yeah, me too. I was deeply unimpressed. By the way, I'm just still on the Twitter timeline. Uh, there's another reporter who was interrupted by the police just doing their work. And it's already the soft, the soft violence is already happening. And I think we'll see more of that. I don't know why the police unions, I mean, I know police are in like a terrible situation in France, like the mental illness and suicide is so much more elevated and they have been the subject of way more violence in recent years, but this is like this heavy-handed American-style approach is just absolutely unhelpful. I just really don't know why you'd go after journalists. Uh, it's, it actually unleashes the violence into another direction. That sort of is uh, it's, it's the it's a sort of target of that. Uh, yeah. And it does make, you know, some of these countries calling for rule of law look like total hypocrites, right? Yeah, totally. Totally. I don't know. Do you think it's just that Macron cannot like get a handle on his ministers like does this have his tacit support right now all of this i mean it's very it's not very republican values right to be to be cracking down on the press like this um, i mean strategically for him he had so many meddling in the press already uh, to put this on his on his uh, plate would be dangerous because it would actually remove would would get him closer to the hot spot yeah. So if he stays away of it, actually, it might well be better because if this whole thing blows off, he still could sacrifice his prime minister or his government, but yeah. uh, he, he could he could sort of emerge unharmed or more or less unharmed. I think it's important for him not to get meddle at least at this point, not to meddle in this debate. One final, I know Wolfgang, you mentioned that there's just been like very little movement um, on Brexit. Which uh, I think, do you remember the conversation we had where you said it was like uh, Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction? She's, uh, at the end of the film, she's kind of in the bathtub, dead, and then just kind of bursts out like she can't be killed. Um, that is what Brexit feels like right now. So now the latest news is that COVID exposure has forced Barney to go back into self-isolation. Uh, is there anything interesting that we can say about Brexit right now? The negotiations are today where they were approximately a week ago. The the teams have identified what they call a landing zone, but that has always been clear since the summer. This, the, the issues haven't changed. What still has to happen is a political agreement. Um, the negotiations are now obviously in overtime. Uh, and as you mentioned, the um, fatal attraction scene <laughs> <laughs> that could last until the end of December, even because no. the EU will not allow itself to, and the UK will both not allow itself to be time capped 
by um, by an artificial deadline. So this could go on all the way to the end. The EU uh, is currently looking at possibilities of avoiding the ratification uh, or the need to ratify before the year end. So they could pr- uh, seek provisional application of a treaty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all they need to do is agree and also to apply provisionally and then have to have it ratified in the new year. Now, this hasn't been done before. It's not clear whether this is legally possible. There may be objections to it for, for other reasons. European Parliament might object to the procedure because obviously it means a treaty would take force that hasn't yet been vetted by the European Parliament and coming into force might create a precedent. So it basically means that once you, once it comes into force, even provisionally, it will be harder to change than, uh, than if it hasn't come into force. So that these are issues that will, will certainly have to be discussed. But the way this is looking at the moment, even on the optimistic assumption that the outlines of a deal were to emerge next week, which has been what some people have been hoping for this week, even in that scenario, it might still take a while to actually conclude the trade uh, trade deal. I mean, this could be a a document running to 1,800 pages. So once this goes beyond the end of the month, you are well into a scenario where the ratification can no longer be easily squeezed. I mean, another possibility is a vote between Christmas and New Year so that the European Parliament goes into (laughs) overtime on ratification. And comes comes back on New Year's Eve and votes. Uh, possible, but in that not case, popular. Po- possible, not popular. <laughs> I can and imagine exactly. And it's, it's also a question of whether it's needed because when they, I mean, the, the issue with ratification is not the vote. It's not a vote. A ratification is a procedure where you vet the laws, where you actually ask some questions about how they are applied. So this is a sort of a dialogue. And the important thing about this is to acclaim that, you know, this is an 1800 or six, we don't know how long it will be, but this is a very complex text. Nobody knows what's in it. Uh, we are just having headlines, but you know, details are not discussed. It will affect a lot of people, some businesses. And uh, so, you know, people have a right to ask some questions about what do I need to do this and do I need to do that? And it will be just, you know, it, no matter what happens, deal or no deal, they, they, we will be in very confusing scenarios. And uh, so, so the uh, thing, but the big issue is not going away. Uh, Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron will both have to climb down on some of the positions they have earmarked as red lines. And that hasn't happened yet. So, you know, the big breakthrough has yet to happen. And uh, you know, I'm not saying it's not happening. It can happen. I think, you know, you never bet against an, a deal at EU level. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, accidents are possible, especially since this is, we are dealing with a non-member, not with a member. This is different from a normal EU level negotiation. Is there any chance that Hungary and Orban or any of um, his pals could veto an agreement with the UK if they don't get their way on rule of law? No, I don't think they will mess with the UK situation. Um, you, you might recall the Brexiters had at one point hoped that Hungary would veto the um, extension request. And in fact, that never happened. Therefore, um, you know, the extension happened with all the dramatic consequences that followed, followed <laughs> from that. Uh, so one should not rely on Viktor Orban to uh, veto uh, veto something when you want him to veto something. <laughs> he, he He's picking his fights carefully. Uh, he knows, you know, he's just vetoed the own resources expansion. This is a strategic decision he took. Uh, I, as I said before, I don't think he's bluffing. This is a very serious position he's taking now. He understands the consequences of that. It's not entirely without risk for him. It's a big, you know, he dares the EU to take very extreme measures against him. That might suit him, actually, in the end. It might suit him politically. 
so that that is where where we are. But these uh, Brexit effects will not be affected by any uh, countries, especially countries like Hungary that have virtually no trade with the UK or very little trade with the UK. The main countries involved here: the Netherlands, Belgium, France, of course, and Germany, who account for the lion's share of of economic relations with the UK. All right. Well, I think that's it for us this week. Uh, we will definitely be keeping an eye on the Brexit situation next week and the week after and the week after, and maybe it will never end. Uh, thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>